Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you must do, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the end to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first, the word of the Lord. About this sermon, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is this is one of the most difficult and disturbing passages in the New Testament. If you don't squirm at various points during this sermon, you're not getting it. Jesus is dangerous to our notions of what we think Christianity is. And even more, he's dangerous to what we think means a good life. The good news? There's communion at the end. <laughs> and it will be officiated by the rich young ruler himself, who will make an offer for us to trade a good life 
in for a great life. We're in uh, the Gospel of Mark, an exciting small group campaign. By the way, it is not too late to get into a small group. Jesse and crew will be out there in the hub. You can sign up. The best way to learn Scripture is with other believers, to read it together, ask questions, and search together. You can also still pick up the curriculum out in the hub as well uh, that we're using. That's available to all people, even if you're not, in a, not able to be in a small group. In the Gospel of Mark, in this section we're in, chapters 9, 10, and 11, in each chapter, Jesus makes a statement like this. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and we're afraid to ask him about it. Jesus, beginning in chapter 8, turns and begins the slow walk to Jerusalem where he will suffer, be betrayed, die, and rise again. But his disciples do not understand, well, two things in particular. One, their idea of the Messiah would be one who would rule with power and conquer the Roman Empire. What's this talk about suffering and laying your life down? They didn't understand the way the kingdom would come. Nor did they understand this whole bit about resurrection. We'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. So Jesus takes these moments and he pulls his disciples, spending more and more time with them here in the last weeks of his life. And as we began talking about last week, his whole intent is to help his followers become self-denying cross carriers. That's the definition of a Christian. Self-denying cross carrier. And he is now in, in this passage today beginning to see that trickle down into the various parts of our life. So he's going to talk about leadership. Immediately after Jesus says those words, his disciples get into a big fight about who's the greatest. And then it happens again at the end of chapter 10. And so next week, Nick's going to be up and he's going to talk about leadership in the kingdom. And what does it mean to be great? Then he goes on, at the beginning of uh, chapter 10, to talk about uh, divorce and marriage. And uh, we're not going to talk about that this morning. You'll be talking about that in your small groups, and in the small group curriculum, you will find a complete copy of the Waterstone uh, statement and position on marriage. And three years ago, we did a series here called Modern Family, and we, we did a message on the parallel passage in Matthew 19 about Jesus' statement on divorce. So I would refer you to that. It's on our website, uh, Modern Family, a Sermon on Divorce. Now, today, we're going to drill down into one of the things that uh, is just, frankly, uh, awkward to talk about in our culture, money. Squirm, money. Let's stick our toe in the water a little bit first and get the temperature. Here, here it is. Here's the story in a nutshell. A man walks up to Jesus, says, how can I gain favor with God? He's thinking to himself, I think I'm close. I think I'm close. At least I'm on the right path. Jesus responds back to him, I love you already, but you are not even close. So what I want you to do is sell everything you have. I want you to trade your good life for a great life. 
And the man, well, he loved a good life. And he couldn't do it. He was crushed. But he walked away from Jesus. There's the story. Now, for me this week, there's been two squirm factors. First squirm factor, I am rich. I'm rich. A couple years ago, I was in the, this great class that we want everyone at Waterstone to go through. It's 40 people taking it right, right now. It's called Justice in Action. And one of the things in Justice in Action you do is take the, use the poverty index tool. You type in your income, your household income, and uh, it, it, it ranks you where you land globally with the amount of money that you earn. Now, for here, middle class in this part of the United States, I am firmly middle class, fat and happy. Globally, I am in the 98th percentile in income. Per capita median income yearly, $2,900. Per household, $9,700. I am rich. And so are most of you. So we really need to listen to this sermon this morning. Secondly, according to the notions of our culture, I'm a decent man. The culture says that uh, the way God interacts with human beings is that there's good people and bad people. And the good people, they're the ones that know the rules and live them. Here are the rules. You need to be spiritual. You need to help out your neighbor when you can. You need to work hard and give some of the money away. You need to raise your kids well and love them. You need to avoid trans fats, uh, recycle, and... Um, uh, volunteer and vote. There's the list. Do those things faithfully and you're a good person. Now, I know we all have our problems. We all have our addictions. We all have a very messy inner thought, thought world. But uh, by and large, I'm just like the rich young ruler. I'm just like this guy. I am rich and I am decent. So, what does Jesus have to say to a man who is rich and decent. Let's dive in. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, yes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So coming in, let's just uh, talk about who this guy is. First, he's desperate. He's eager. I mean, he, he runs up to Jesus. He runs. And remember, men in those days wore, uh, not, what am I kilt, not kilts, Robes. They wore robes. So running was unheard of in public settings. This guy's running up to Jesus, and he falls on his knees. So let's just say he's eager. He's desperate. Now, a little later in the text, Mark's going to identify him as being very wealthy. Matthew, in a parallel gospel account, when Matthew describes this story, he says he's young, which probably was somewhere, we would guess, early 20s to, to, to 30. When you were 30, you became kind of a man and would no longer, young would no longer fit. So, you know, 20, 30. And Luke says he's a ruler, which the word means either in a religious context or a government context, people reported to him. He was a boss. He is a rich young ruler who is eager. Could we call him this? He's an eager, high-achieving millennial. 
That works. And he comes up to Jesus to say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Though he is rich and young, there is still something missing. Wait, wait. I know who this guy is. Take a look. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, put an happy face on, sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's, you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So, in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> Just what you always wanted. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night being that. No way. You mean like alone or not alone? <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. So Jesus, you would think, would want Tom Brady on his team. A rich young ruler, an eager, high-achieving millennial. He would want a person like that in his movement. But notice Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler. One answer is totally unexpected. The other is somewhat expected. First is unexpected. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. It's as if Jesus is trying to pick a fight with the guy. Who are you calling? And the way the Greek sentence is constructed, the me is emphatic. It's like, me? You're calling me good? He is immediately sh verbally shoving the guy to get him off balance and say, first of all, who do you think you're talking to? Who's God? And second, what's good? Who's good? Jesus jars him knocks him off balance, and then he gives him the expected answer. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, steal, false testimony, defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, first pass, we think, okay, Jesus is talking about the second shelf of the Ten Commandments that have to do with social relationships, how we treat people. But notice, there's something huge going on in what Jesus answers here. This is not the expected answer. Did you notice there's a commandment missing? Anyone see it? What's missing? Covet. I heard it. Covet. From the second shelf. Covet is missing. Why? Because this guy never has had a moment of coveting in his life. He has it all. Notice what's in there that's not in the original bottom six. Defraud. The word literally means to hold something of benefit back from another person in need. To hold something of benefit back from another person in need. Could it be that Jesus is also throwing a wrench into the gears of this man's moral machinery 
to remind him that the only way a person can stay rich is by ignoring the poor. The man answers, teacher, he declared, knows enough not to call him good again. All these I have kept since I was a boy. What's interesting to me here is Jesus does not push on that at all. I suspect Jesus believes him. I believe him. Outwardly speaking, this man worked hard at being good. He just couldn't shake the huge hole in his heart. So Jesus is about to become a brick wall to this man. He, the steel curtain, let's say. He is about to have him run into Jesus and fall flat on his face. Notice what he does in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Before we talk about this brick wall that Jesus just throws at him, it's important to note that Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is a brick wall of love. This is the motivation. The word look there is interesting. It's the Greek word blepo, but in this particular version of it, it's an intensified compound. It's literally emblepo, which means a long, awkward, uncomfortable stare. Jesus drills this man with his eyes. It's the same word used after Peter's denials and the rooster crows, and it says Jesus looked at Peter. This is a gaze that lets the person looking at you, you, you understand that he knows everything about you, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, and he's the one looking at you. And how's he going to respond? Is he going to see everything you've done and thought and be disgusted and shocked and walked away? No, he looked at him and loved him. The same way Jesus looks at every one of us in this room and loves us. And he loved him. Now, what does that mean? In our culture, we kind of have this sense that, you know, if you truly love someone, you never question their choices or their lifestyle. That was not Jesus' approach. Jesus' approach was that if you love someone, you tell them the truth. And so Jesus tells them the truth. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. Four imperative verbs that really mean one thing. Give up the good life for a great life. Jesus is saying to this eager, high-achieving millennial, you want to have eternal life, that is, you want to have intimacy with me, then you need to change the way you relate to your success and your gifts. You need to repent because you've been using money to heal your heart. You've been asking money to give you uh, 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 security and identity. You've made it a counterfeit God in your life. A person cannot cling to money and find rest in God at the same time. You need to turn from that. So imagine, imagine your life without money. Imagine your life without investments and inventories and servants and manners. Imagine that all you have is me. Can you live like that? The man's answer Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had 
great wealth. Two words, the face fell is one word. It's literally the word lowering. It's used in Matthew 16 to talk about how uh, people watching the weather see the clouds fall when a storm comes in. This man's countenance lowered. Jesus, the storm, entered his life. But he went away sad. That word is used of Jesus when he's praying in the garden and sweating blood. And the text says that he was deeply sad because he knew he would be separated from his father. Oh, do you see the parallel? Money was to the rich young ruler what the father was to Jesus. The thought of being separated crushed them. This man without his money felt like nothing. Interlude! Woo! It's a Henry Nouwen story. Henry Nouwen, Jesuit priest, scholar, for years and years spent decades teaching at high-level institutions like Harvard and Yale, got so disillusioned with academia, its prestige and pride that he walked away. And he took a parish in Montreal, Canada, where he worked in La Arche, which is a home for handicapped special needs children. Henry Nowen, vocationally caring for special needs children. Well, because he'd written so many books about how to be a self-denying, cross-carrying Christian, he would still Except when his admin would come and tell him, Henry, you need to speak at this occasion because there's board members from La Arch and there's lots of money in the room that we need. So this one particular time he got an invitation, his admin encouraged him to take it, so he writes back and says, I'll come and speak, but I'm bringing my friend Trevor. Trevor was one of his disciples, one of his mentees. They wrote back and said, well, we don't have the facilities or the capabilities to care for Trevor, so what if we just made a large donation in his name to Larch? Henry, who was usually very meek, wrote back and said, I'm not coming if Trevor's not with me. Okay, okay, and they come. They have this esteemed luncheon, PhDs, lawyers, doctors, you know, people, the high cultural elites in the room. Henry now and, and Trevor, Trevor who'd been antsy, all service, groans, kind of shouting, but they walk up to the stage together. Henry says, it would be wise for us to first hear some words from Trevor. So Trevor puts his head back, smiles, it starts. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And he sang it again. And he sang it a third time. And he kept singing until everyone in the room was singing. And the only thing anyone talked about after the luncheon was over was not Henry Nowen, but about Trevor. Seems to me that one of the reasons Henry wanted Trevor to speak and, and to speak first is because when he walked up there, all anyone else could see in the room was the deficits that Trevor had. And they had compassion, and that's honorable. But it seems to me the main thing Henry Nowen saw was a heart that knew what it was to be loved by the one who made him and a community of love around him such that he lived a totally dependent life on love. And we always need to hear from those hearts first. Back to the story. 
verse 23. Jesus is going to huddle the disciples up. The encounter's over. Rich man walks away. Very sad. Very sad. Let's learn from this. Jesus is going to say, disciples, when it comes to money, there's two things I always want you to remember. Waterstone, we're huddling with Jesus right now. He's saying to us two things about money I always want you to remember. Here they are. First, money is hard. Money's hard. Second, but God is good. God is good. Money's hard. God is good. Money's hard. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Trevor, I mean children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Two things. One, the disciples are shocked. Why are the disciples shocked? Well, I mean, their view of money was a biblical view by sat on the table. I mean, they knew that in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was often fueled by very wealthy people like Job, like Abraham, like several of the prophets, they knew that the ministry of Jesus was supported by very wealthy, powerful people, like Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body off the cross and buried him in his own new tomb. I mean, I wanted to be clear here. Jesus is not against wealth. He is not against the creation of wealth. Those things are clear. Well, then, the second thing, why is Jesus trying to be so shocking? The disciples are shocked. And why is Jesus using such, I mean, he's using an aphorism here, this camel and needle thing. In our culture, it would be something like a snowball's chance in hell for the rich to get to heaven. Why such provocative language? <laughs> I, I've been waiting years to use that in a sermon. So uh, here we go. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for indulging. Why does Jesus use such shocking? Well, and whenever Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus always seems to use this kind of shocking light. He puts a yellow light on wealth. Why? I think it's because he knows that our hearts are prone to wonder here. I think it's because he knows that wealth has the capacity to dull the human heart. I think it's because we know wealth is one of the counterfeit gods in the world. It promises us identity and it promises us security and our heart wants those things. And so often we settle for the temporary and the counterfeit more than we settle for who we truly should be dependent on. He knows and so he has to speak in shocking language to break in the grip or to even make us question how much wealth has our place in our heart. So, you know, we've talked about this at Waterstone. Uh, I just love talking about it, though. It, it's like when Jesus talked about wealth, he would always say something like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Watch out. You might be greedy. Now, why does he use that, put a yellow light on money and use that kind of shocking language? Well, it's because like other sins, we know when we're committing other sins. You don't suddenly wake up after committing adultery one day and say, oh, wait, you're not my wife. I mean, we know when we're committing any other sin, except when it comes to being greedy. 
That's why Jesus is often saying, watch out. You might be greedy. We always have to question ourselves on it. Listen, I tell people this. We preach messages like this, everyone gets discouraged, and I just want to say to you, rightly so. <laughs> Jesus wants you in tension with your money. He does. For your own good. And I want to say this to you. The deeper you go into the journey with Jesus, the more tension you're going to have with your money, not less. He's going to be calling you deeper into sacrifice and giving. Deeper and deeper and deeper. He's going to pick on you about your money. And it will be the most spiritual reflection that you do. Jesus talked more about how we use money than he did about praying and reading the Bible. It's that big. Why? Because it has that much hold on our heart. So if you're feeling guilty about your money, amen. If you're wrestling, I want to give more, but I have this and that, that's the most spiritual conversation you can ever have. Keep talking. And by the way, why is it that we don't bring those sorts of questions to our small group? Why is it in our small group we'll talk about everything else we have but how much we give to charity or to the church? And we keep that part of our life walled off. That should not be so. If it's that important. So, one more passage. Jesus wasn't the only one. 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. Uh, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap that into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Yellow light. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith pierce themselves with money. So real quick, a test to see if money is more than money to you. Three things to wrestle with. In your small groups, talk amongst yourselves. You know money has taken root in your heart if you cannot give large amounts of money away. Take some risks. Be radical. You, you get scared if you might have less than you are accustomed to having. Scared. Money's your security. You see people doing better than you even though you work harder than they do. <laughs> and it gets under your skin. Money is hard. So where do we get the inner resources and the confidence and the strength to push it back, to push back on it? God is good. Notice Peter's first response after Jesus says how hard money is. He says, Peter, you know, Peter the brave, he always says what everyone else is thinking. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is being very blunt as we're talking about money. He says there's a payoff. Here's why you should be generous. Here's why you should push back the greed in your heart. There's a payoff. He talks first about an, an afterlife. 
You might have noticed I can, earlier I conveniently skipped over that part about uh, when you give to the poor, it becomes treasure in heaven. There's a currency in heaven. When we get to heaven 50,000 years from now, what we will feel most gratitude about what we did in this life is what we gave away. That's the currency. In other words, you don't really own anything until you've given it away. Then you get to keep it. Remember which currency you're living life in. He talks about raw kingdom logic. It only makes sense if we understand this and fight to understand this every week. After we die, after a short time here on earth, we live with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That should drastically, dramatically impact the way we spend our money. Even the pagans have figured this out. The scoundrel Woody Allen said, if man is immortal, I have definitely overpaid for my rug. So there's a future blessing and there's a present blessing. You know what's shocking about those words to Peter? He's talking about you get Fields family and stuff now. What does that mean? Quickly. Everything we have belongs to God, and God wants it scattered throughout his kingdom, throughout the world, to help those who don't have to have. That means everything you have in your house literally belongs to me. Thank you. Everything I have belongs to you. The Christians are communal. We've lost some of that. Or maybe not. I had some really interesting conversations this last month knowing this sermon was coming. I talked to a family in Waterstone that were sitting around realizing they had some empty rooms in their house. And so what they decided to do was uh, lease those, rent those rooms out to international students who come to DU and UCD and they're Muslim students. Wow. I talked to another young family that has a couple kids, but they have a couple empty rooms in their house, so they decided to get into foster care. Here's an interesting exercise. What if your small group sat around and you counted up the number of empty rooms in your house that like get no use? And what if you asked God to come into your conversation and you began to brainstorm about what you could do with those empty rooms? All right. How do we do it? What's the antidote to being the rich young ruler? What's the antidote to greed? How do we get a generous heart? The answer is that we learn to love the rich young ruler. Now, here's what I mean. Do you remember in the text when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said he, he loved him? Why did Jesus love the rich young ruler? Because Jesus was an eager, high-achieving millennial, just like him. And his heart went out to him. And he loved him. Do you know how we get a generous heart? Because we too love an eager, high-achieving millennial. His name is Jesus. And when we understand that he had all the wealth and riches of heaven, joy, glory, and the love of the Trinity, and he walked away from it all, he did do what Jesus asked the young ruler to do. He walked away from it all. Why? In order that he who was rich became poor, in order that he could give it to us and we become rich rich in the life of heaven. When we understand that Jesus, the rich young ruler, became poor so that we could become rich, suddenly our hearts become generous. Suddenly we don't sit around grumpy, oh, I have to give money away. No, 
When we love Jesus as the rich young ruler, our rich young ruler, we sit around thinking, come on, how can I give more away because of what the rich young ruler's done for me? So now the rich young ruler invites us to the table of the Lord to bring our hearts and all that we have and own to him. We come with some liturgy. We ask the servers to prepare as we come to the table. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.